All right. Good evening, everyone. Thanks for coming. Good evening to you guys online. Can't see you, but see me. So glad to have you with us. We're picking back up in Luke chapter 16. And we'll do just a final recollection of the parable of the dishonest manager. And then we'll jump into the transition material, verse 14 through 18. And then on to the rich man and Lazarus, which some count to be a parable and some don't. We'll talk about that as we get a little closer. The flow of themes, though, I think will become obvious to us. Let's open with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit into our hearts and minds. Enlighten our eyes to see wonderful things from your word, to be drawn into repentance and the joy of salvation in Christ, the free gift of salvation you give to us in him. May you bless this time together and may you prosper the work and labors in studying and understanding your word that we here do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So one thing I'll point out at this time, I don't think I've done it before, except maybe after class, is if you flip back to chapter 15, verse 1, you're going to see that there's a unit here, and we're also going to collect data on the audience and what their thoughts are. So at 15.1, Luke tells us, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So then, obviously, in the parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the two lost boys, you have an answer to that, to the content of the grumbling. This man receives sinners and eats with them. And again, at just very basic level rhetoric, it's like, yeah, a shepherd rejoices when he finds his lost sheep. A woman rejoices when she finds her lost coin. A father rejoices when his lost son returns. Do you think I'm not going to rejoice? Do you not see... Uh, what the content of my ministry is. I'm coming for tax collectors and sinners, for those who are lost. And so you've got both these themes contrasted. They don't understand God's grace and God's grace embodied and enacted in Jesus. And then they're grumbling. And so Jesus contradicts both of those with the great joy that is occurring when that which is lost has been found. So those themes have dominated up into 16.1. And 16.1, you get just this little hint at a transition where now he addresses the parable of the dishonest manager specifically to his disciples. We have no reason to believe that the crowd as a whole has changed. But the parable of the dishonest manager is spoken specifically to his disciples, to those who believe in him. And I think that's why it's so clear at verse 9, where he says, I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. The you there are the disciples, the believers, by extension us. 
So the instruction of our Lord is to make friends for ourselves, just as the dishonest manager did in the story, by means of unrighteous wealth. He used wealth as a means to an end, and we should too, even though our end is going to be very different than his. He's looking for a temporal relief, and he's going to be shrewd in how he gets that. We're looking for an eternal relief, and we should likewise be shrewd about how we get that. So Jesus goes on to say, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, when the wealth fails, they may receive you into eternal tents, eternal dwellings. And that's a picture of heaven, um, the picture of the tents. You can think of the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, Peter wants to build tents up there because he thinks this is it. This is the end. Uh, We're in heaven. And so it's a picture of heaven. And so it's a picture of using unrighteous wealth as a means to an end, and that end being enriching and endearing yourself to those people who are in heaven, enriching yourself as you minister to them, enriching them and dwelling with them for all eternity. All right, one other thing I want to point out, and we'll just kind of pick right back up there, is look at 14. Chapter 16, verse 14, we're given some more data. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things. So you have an internal transition that takes place where you've got the son that squanders his money, the older son who retains it all. Which one of the two uses it in a good way, or which one of the two is blessed by the money, blessed by the possession? Neither. (laughs) And so we see this topic of the role of money sort of emerge within the body of Jesus preaching, and we're told why at 14. We're told why he draws out this point and why he transitions from the theme of the lost being found, the grace of God toward the lost, the rejoicing that takes place, and there's a transition toward proper and right use of wealth And now in 14, it's revealed to us why Jesus makes this transition. The Pharisees were lovers of money. They heard all these things and they ridiculed him. We're also given another data point at 15 in Jesus' response to them as they're ridiculing him. He says, you are those who justify yourselves before men. And as we're going to see in the parable, if you will, of the rich man and Lazarus, and for our purposes tonight, I'm just going to assume it's a parable, even though it doesn't have to be. But one of the ways that is recurrent throughout the Gospels, especially highlighted perhaps in John's Gospel, one of the ways that the Pharisees are justifying themselves before men is on the basis of their ontology. We have Abraham as our father. We are faithful to the law. Those are kind of their two main ways in which they justify themselves before men and over and against other men. So we're going to see both of those themes emerge following verse 15. Jesus is going to address these things. But because they're lovers of money, 
you can see all the more how Jesus wants his disciples to be different. Not to be lovers of money, but lovers of God and lovers of what God loves, which are the saints. Okay, so then as we pick back up at 10, let's just pick up there. I think these themes will kind of start to make more sense. And you'll see not only what Jesus says, but why he says it. Okay, so at 10, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is, and I again, I, I prefer the unrighteous here, which is a more literal wooden translation, one who is adikos, one who is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. I mean, Jesus has wonderfully contrasted faithfulness with unrighteousness. Again, if you're really trying to study the way Jesus does justification, he's doing it right here. So, whereas an easy contrast would be righteous versus unrighteous, he has the contrast faithful versus unrighteous. So, subtle, to be sure, and Jesus is quite a bit more obvious in other places, but with Jesus, it's thoroughgoing, and that's at the heart of his teaching. His opponents certainly don't miss it. That's why they're angry with him. Okay, so at 11 then, if then you, plural here, have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, the unrighteous mammon, who will to entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another's, Was the dishonest manager faithful in what was another's? No. <laughs> no. So here's a great contrast. Remember, he's commended for his shrewdness for nothing else. He's a son of darkness, a son of this world. He's unrighteous. He's unfaithful in how he deals with what belongs to someone else. So I think here's another key element of Jesus' teaching. We touched on it last week. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, stewardship is obviously the word we use for it, just shorthand. And it's a fine word as long as we don't forget what it means. And that is that everything we have is given to us by God and it's given to us for a time. That's the whole frame. And really, that's the frame of the dishonest manager. Everything he has isn't belongs to another. Is he faithful? No. Is he shrewd? Yes. Jesus would have you be shrewd like he's shrewd, but then be faithful like he's not faithful. <laughs> okay, so um, remember that as, as Jesus' disciples, this is his teaching, remember that what you have is in fact another, another's. You're the stewards of what God has given you. And if you're faithful in that stewardship, he'll give you that which is your own. That's the sense even though it's asked here as a question. If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant. Again, we're going to see ourselves as servants here. No servant can serve two masters. For he either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. So it's completely binary, mutually exclusive. 
You cannot serve both God and mammon. That's the sense. You're going to end up serving one or the other. Who does the dishonest manager serve? Yeah, himself and money, ultimately. Now, when we get to the next line, which here the paragraph break doesn't really help us, you cannot serve God and money, the Pharisees who are lovers of money. So are they serving God? No. That's the contrast. So the Pharisees then in their unfaithfulness and their unrighteousness and their service of themselves and their love for money are very much um, the foil over and against which Christ defines how he would have his disciples be. Lovers of God and thus money becomes a mere means of how we serve God. That's kind of the final salvo before Luke interjects with the facts of 14 that the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. They ridicule him too, and this is I, this will be evident to you in the material we've already covered as well as just a general sense of the content of the Gospels and the framework of the ancient peoples. They viewed money as a blessing of God and as proof that God loved them. So I'm rich because I've done everything right. And God has blessed me. And that's kind of their theology. We're Abraham's sons. We're better than the Gentiles. We follow the law. We're better than the lost sheep of the house of the Israel. And he blesses us with money. That's as sure a sign as any that we're going to heaven. On all three counts, they're dead wrong. <laughs> and that's really Jesus' point. And then Luke's point as he calls this all together in the narrative. Okay, again, then at 15, it'll make sense how Jesus sort of almost inclusio style, you know, we begin with like, why is Jesus willing to eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Tax collectors, again, are turncoats, they're traitors, they're those that are serving the pagans, the Gentiles. So why is Jesus open to them? Well, because he's gracious and he's going to be doing the justifying of the sinner. And then we go into money. And then you got the three parables that back that up. And then you go into money. And now we have this final statement on money. They're lovers of money. And now we're back in Clusio to where we began with the question of justification. You are the one, you are those who justify yourselves before men. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And here's your first glimpse of the great reversal, major theme in Luke's gospel. Of course, the Magnificat lays the groundwork for this, that the rich are cast down and the poor lowly are exalted. And so here you've just got the mere image of that that what is exalted among sinful men is cast down. It's an abomination in the sight of God. And you can see already how the rich man and Lazarus is going to tie right into that because the rich man and Lazarus is really the great reversal writ large, writ poignantly. Okay, but Jesus isn't done there yet because you've got the, you've got this issue that Again, they think because they're Abraham's sons, they're better than the Gentiles. They think because they follow the law, they're better than the lost sheep. 
That's what they think. That's what justifying themselves before men here means. So Jesus is going to take up the law here. So the law and the prophets were until John. Now, by that phrase, he just means the scriptures. That's the writings of Moses and the writings of the prophets. So the Old Testament scriptures were until John. That is to say, they're fulfilled in John. John marks the end of that and the transition to the new. Since then, I mean, really, since John, the good news of the kingdom or reign of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier, now we'll go back to that, but don't lose the forest for the trees. 17, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Okay, so Jesus isn't saying, look, we can just toss the scriptures. They're fulfilled up till John. When he comes, a new thing has come, namely the good news of the reign of God, reigning in Christ and drawing out men of every nation into that reign, into that kingdom of God. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now, this does us no good to have a chapter break here either. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Why does Jesus throw this in? Because death is the end of the old covenant. Okay. So, that, so they don't have to technically, he's saying you're not obligated to that old covenant because you, you killed the groom or the bride or whatever. You killed it. Hmm. So now you're, now you're Interesting take. I think what you say is true. <laughs> I don't I don't know that that's specifically what's going on here, but I like what, I mean, if you preach that, I'd be like, amen. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's right. Because Paul uses that language, the death of the, you know, if one is married, then a death brings about the end of the marriage. I'm not sure that that's exactly what's going on here, exegetically. Yes. So this is like, uh, basically, what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount, done just with a fine, fine spear point. Fine, fine. So you remember that you have heard that said, you know, you shall not murder, but I say to you, you shall, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you. So what's going on there? What's expanded in the Sermon on the Mount? is the righteousness of the Pharisees. If we keep these laws externally, we're better than you. And that's not the essence of the law. That's the righteousness of the Pharisees, the external righteousness, the whitewashed sepulcher where in their hearts, remember Luke, God, Jesus says, God knows your hearts. So they have only external righteousness. They think, well, as long as we don't have, uh, you know, divorce or as long as we divorce in accordance with what Moses wrote, we're fulfilling the law. It's an externality. So I think what Jesus is doing here is he's accusing them very, very shorthand. 
And it's the theology of the Sermon on the Mount. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. He who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. The circumstances here in the first century are um, very much like they are today. Okay, So it's just the sexes are flip-flopped. If you want to divorce your wife, the state's going to make it hell on earth for you. She's going to get the money. She's going to get the kids. She can go have a boyfriend. And as long as she doesn't marry him, she can live under his means and they can use your forced donations as their vacation fund. And that's the reality of the situation. The laws are entirely tilted against men right now. It's a major problem because there's a lot of young men who don't even want to get married. What's the point? All marriage does is signs me up to lose half my stuff and maybe fund her and her boyfriend as soon as I burn the toast, as soon as she wants out, no-fault divorce. So this is all flipped. In the first century, the men had the power, the men had the backing of the structure. And so if the woman burns the toast or whatever other reason, she, they just write a certificate of divorce. And the Pharisees thought that this was perfectly in keeping with the law, that if there was just a divorce, I mean, if there was, if there was any reason you wanted to get divorced, just write a certificate. Moses allowed for a certificate. Just do away with it. So Jesus here, this is my take, and, and I, obviously I'm not the only one who has this take. That's what he's doing, is he's saying, yeah, you think you can keep the law by writing your certificates of divorce by this hypocrisy? You don't follow the law any more than the tax collectors and sinners. Your righteousness is only equal to theirs in God's sight. God knows your heart. So he, this, is a, this is a jab against their whole way of reading the law and their whole way of doing the law. It's external, it's lip service, and it's not at all the spirit of the law or the deeper understanding of the law and the prophets. So everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. That's a stab at them and their theology of self-justification. Now, I mean, as a secondary kind of read and component, again, Jesus is masterful enough to freight the language. We can, of course, reflect on Christ as the bridegroom and his love for sinners, the bride. And we can see here, by reflection and by extension, how if he's absolute on marriage, that's ultimately a good thing for us because we're his bride. And so when he expresses this absolutism toward marriage, it ultimately is comforting because we know that he won't divorce us for burning the toast or otherwise. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. So, but I do think that that's a secondary reflection and it's a good one. It's a godly one to have. And anytime we see Jesus talking about marriage and divorce, we ought to have that in mind. What's his attitude toward it? And what does that mean for us? But I think right here, what he's really doing is needling the Pharisees who want to justify themselves.
Okay, so before we move on to the rich man and Lazarus, which are kind of going to, again, we're going to see Jesus weave these themes together. But before we do, we'll go to that difficult line in 16. Just take all of 16 so we can get our bearings. The law and the prophets, so here the scriptures, were until John. They all pointed and directed to John as the forerunner of the Messiah. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Now, the part of the problem here is the language is ambiguous. Who's forcing their way into it? Yeah, I think I think ultimately you're right. So But even the Jews, because this takes you back to that. The woman up in Samaria mm-hmm. comes to the well, mm-hmm. and she's half Jew, half Gentile. Mm-hmm. So she's forcing her way in. God says, "Yeah, I will give you living." Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a couple of different takes on this, and as long as they're, as long as the takes rightly divide law and gospel, there's nothing wrong with you know having differing takes. Uh, so one take that's kind of been that's been around like more since the Reformation than before is the idea that everyone forcing their way into it is that Jesus is criticizing the Pharisees for trying to self-justify their way into the kingdom. So this violence of works righteousness, this trying to take the kingdom when the kingdom is coming as a gift in Christ. It's a plausible read. I don't love it personally. It's a plausible read. What's another read? Another read is that the kingdom has come and everyone is crowding their way into it. Okay, so this idea of crowding into the narrow gate, clamoring around Jesus. Um, And that might especially reflect back on 1521. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. They seem to be, I think in Luke's context, they seem to be the ones who are forcing their way into the kingdom. Are the Pharisees? No. They think they already have it. They're hanging around Jesus to make sure he makes a mistake and they nail him for it. But they're not trying to crowd or clamor into the kingdom. So that's where that's where I kind of agree with you. Even though I'm open to other interpretations and I'm certainly not offended by them, I think that that's the sense here of this saying of Jesus in Luke. The Gentiles are clamoring in as well as the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Sinners are clamoring in. not the Pharisees. And so he's going to poke down what's stopping them, which is their own sense of righteousness, self-righteousness over and against other men. Every time I look at the Pharisees, they remind me of Democrats. They get it wrong. Um, Every time they choose Jesus or something, it's always going back to the Old Testament. And they, how can you screw it up? But they do. Remember when they're going through the grain fields and they're picking the heads 
And they said, you're working on the Sabbath. He accused his disciples of working. And that was addressed in Deuteronomy. And it's incorrect. They were incorrect in their interpretation of the law because it, it didn't say you couldn't do that. And they said, oh, yes, you were working on the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that, and then, he, and then he said, well, you did miracles on the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. And again, mm -hmm. it's not where in scripture that it says you can't do miracles on the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. every time they, they say something, they're wrong. Yeah, yeah, I see your point. And I, I think it's, I think, I mean, yeah, I like it in general. The, the idea then would be that the, that the scribes and the Pharisees, again, the scribes are the experts in the Bible. The experts of the Bible don't understand the Bible. They think it's given them all they need for eternal life if they just keep the external religious rights. And Jesus is like, no, the entire Bible has been pointing to John and John to me and the coming of the kingdom. What you're seeing is sinners clamoring to get in, but you're sitting out because you don't understand the scriptures and you don't understand the law. And thus he, he kind of ends this little section, if you will, even though it's not really a section with, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And then he, he tacks down this law, which is going to very poignantly show that they don't understand the law. The very basis of their justification before men, they don't understand. Pastor Rodi, I have a, a kind of an observation I've often wondered about. It seems to me that the Pharisees, you know, why did they get to a certain point and not go any farther? And it, it seems to me that they, in the Old Testament times, uh, they had an obligation to meet God halfway, if you will. And they so they believed and they knew the law, but they, they didn't know God and personally. Whereas when Jesus came, that was, uh, Jesus came, God came all the way to us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You see, so when he says uh, uh, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone, you know, you come to him, Jesus fulfills it by, by um, making it real 100%. He meets us all the way instead of the Pharisees. Didn't get it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in all those years, they fell further away and further away because all they had is their, you know, where it says, um, he who seeks me will find me, but they didn't really go seeking. And then uh, also when it says, uh, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death in Proverbs. It's like they fell right into the trap of their own sinful selves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's yeah. the way I, I just yeah I, re I resonate with some of that. I think so. What you what you discover, even just reading the Old Testament itself, is that at some point in time, there's an alien understanding of the faith. The Old Testament faith is centered in Christ and in the coming Messiah, and. So if we call this, if we, I mean, I think we could actually call this Christianity. Okay. So as early as the first gospel proclamation, that the words that God spoke to the serpent in the garden 
that the seed of the woman, that's the Messiah, will crush your head. You're going to bruise his heel. He's going to crush your head. That is to say, he's going to win his victory over you through suffering, thus undoing what you've brought, sin and death. From that moment forward, from Adam and Eve, all the way to Noah and the flood, Noah is a preacher of righteousness. What righteousness is he preaching? Do the right stuff? Yeah, of course. But at the center of that is God's going to undo sin and death through the Messiah. And that faith continues on, though it gets perverted through the lineage of his sons. Christianity is the oldest religion in the world, and it's the religion of the Old Testament. But what you start to see, uh, so now, like, fast forward from Noah um, to Abraham, which the Bible does in very short order, and then fast forward from Abraham, Abraham's the beginning of the people of God, and that's going to factor into this next section. So they see themselves as sons of Abraham and thus saved, but that's not right. Among the, among the offspring of Abraham, you see those who understand the Christian faith, who understand the coming of the Messiah, and those who don't. This is only heightened when Moses, so fast forward from Abraham to Moses, and the covenant of the law, this Sinaitic covenant, Mount Sinai. From that point on, you really have this internal division amongst God's people. So the first division you have is you have the nation of God in Abraham and Moses, the nation that God creates through the waters of the Red Sea, And you've got that nation of Israel divided against the other nations, the Gentiles, the ethne. See that first division? But then within Israel, within the people of God, Abraham, Moses, Israel, you have a division. You have Christians, and then you have something else emerge. That's something else I'm going to call Judaism. You have Judaism emerge under Moses, and Judaism has all the form but not the substance. So Judaism says, ah, not a Messiah, and if it is a Messiah, he's going to come and pat us on the back for being the good boys. What makes us good is fulfilling the externality of the law. Does it matter if we're inwardly just? No. Does it matter if we're inwardly righteous? No. All that matters is that we keep the externality of the law and thus show ourselves to be better than other Israelites. You're the bad guys, we're the good guys internally. You get a bunch of other things emerge from that. Well, as long as we do the sacrifices, then that's that's good enough. That's what we just got to check the boxes. See, check the external boxes. God wants the sacrifice, we give the sacrifices. Do we need faith in the Messiah? Nope. Just do the sacrifices. Now, there's a there's a Latin slogan for that, ex opera operato, by the doing of the deed itself. So this is where, like, for example, in the Psalms, you get this kind of lament, like, um, sacrifices you did not desire, but a broken heart and a contrite spirit. What's going on there? I mean, God instituted the sacrifices. Does God suddenly not want the sacrifices? No, that's not the point. 
the point that David is drawing out in that psalm is that there are two very different uses of the sacrifices. One is the Christian use, a broken and contrite spirit that realizes I'm a sinner in need of a Savior and trusts itself to the coming Messiah and receives the sacrifices as that which cleanses the sins by extension and gives a good conscience. But what comes first is the inner repentance, the inner faith, the inner trust in God, and then follows the the sacrifices, then follows the keeping of the law from the heart. Make sense? That's Christianity in the Old Testament. But what emerges is Judaism, which is your inner heart doesn't matter. Your true repentance doesn't matter. Tick the external law off. Do the sacrifice. If you mess up, do the sacrifices, but you're not really messing up anyway. Just do the sacrifices. And um, yeah, I mean, to be sure, you get pagan intrusions into Israel as well. You get Gentile pagan intrusions into Israel. So you get this crass idolatry going on as well. And you see that. But you also get this subtle invention within Israel of a false religion that looks right on the outside, but is internally dead wrong. That's Judaism. And that's what the Pharisees are masters of, Judaism. That's why when Jesus comes, he's at odds with them and is constantly trying to point out that even though they've got the law and the sacrifices, and it's just all external to them. You whitewashed sepulchers. It's all ex opera operato. It's all just by the doing of the thing itself, checking off the box. Okay. So there's a version of this that, I mean, that parallels Christianity, of course, to a T. And you, you can see the exact parallel in the birth of the church, that the church is and always is Christ-centered, his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness. It's a call to internal repentance and to internal faith and trust in him. And then all the sacraments and all the, the new obedience, all of that finds its proper order and place. But then within Christianity, there starts to become a false Christianity that really manifests itself. It comes like a, like a big festering zit comes to the, comes to a whitehead in, at the Reformation. And it's this whole idea that Christianity has been subverted by this legalism, by this, well, how often do you fast and how many hair shirts do you wear and are you excelling beyond the law and it's just all this externality and superficiality meanwhile are there any, is there any genuine repentance of the heart is there any genuine trust in god is there any genuine faith in the messiah no he's quickly replaced by mary and the saints and how many how many uh, miles did you walk on your knees and um did you put ashes on your head? Did you pray to the other mediate? So there is within Christendom a false Christendom. And that really is the religion of the Antichrist proper because it's within the church. So you see the parallel? All right, so just one more, one more point, and maybe I'll rankle you with this. Uh, what is a Judeo-Christian worldview? <laughs> There's no such thing. It's really, it's really an illusion, especially when you get into what is at the heart, what, what is it that distinguishes Judeo from Christian? Because we say a Judeo Christian worldview, but we've made a distinction between Judeo and Christian. What is it? One hates 
Jesus and one loves Jesus. One thinks Jesus is the scum of the earth. They actually write in the Talmud, boiling in excrement for all eternity, versus the others see God, Jesus as God in human flesh, whom we worship and adore. So what, what is that shared worldview again? What's it predicated upon? Uh, yeah, but only for the Judeo, an external keeping of them. Because if they knew the Ten Commandments the way they should know the Ten Commandments, then they would know them the way we know them, which is in the, in the accusation, the second use of the law. The, the Ten Commandments, obviously, they give us the path that God would have us walk. But more deeply than that, they show us our sin and they draw us into the need of the Savior. See? I hear another perspective that one reason why you're a liberal Christian church branch is because if they lack the gospel, they look at the law and they resist it. So they make it easy. Hmm? And they don't hmm? really understand the gospel. And that's why they became liberal, to make it easier to go. Yeah, yeah, I think that's another expression of it. There are countless expressions of this, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament parallel. But I think it's vital for us to see that within Old Testament Israel, there are Christians and there are Jews. Okay, There's Judaism and there's Christianity. And the same thing happens parallel in the New Testament church. So that the Lutherans will take up this exact phrase, ex opera operato, and they'll explain, they'll say, see, this is what was happening. This is what the psalmists and the prophets lament. This is exactly what we are lamenting right now. You mean if I just sprinkle the holy water, if I say 10 Hail Marys, it's all better? Yeah, that's it. That's all better. Wow, I don't really even have to be sorry or have faith in Jesus, do I? Nope, just come to penance, get your assignment, do it, you're all good. That, yeah, yeah, it's well, and it's it's so that sometimes is legalism, sometimes Romanism, but what it really is is it's Judaizing Christianity. So, yeah, yeah that's what Jesus saw. Remember when they he's looking at the people putting money in, and they looked at what well, she put in a mic, mm-hmm. the others put in a lot of money, and they're the best ones. And then I look at the church and selling indulgences, yeah, I think that's a better way. Yeah, an, an excellent point. So once you understand this frame, you'll start to see it everywhere because it's the, it's really the dominant frame and it's, it's the dominant lens when you see like, why aren't the people getting it? Or what is Jesus pointing out in contrast? You know, everybody's putting their money into the, but one is a Christian and the rest aren't. I thought I heard you say in a Bible study one time that, um, the, Old Testament folks who believed in the Messiah were kind of, in a way, justified through faith. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So that's going on back to Adam. In fact, yeah, I mean, so the whole argument of Romans, which we take to be the foundational teaching, the systematic teaching of justification by grace through faith, that entire thing is predicated upon Abraham and upon David. The whole argument. So Paul's entire argument is this is what justified the Old Testament saints. It's what justifies us now. The only difference is what was nebulously like the Messiah is now concrete in Jesus. What the 
and and this is the transition, you know, the the law and the prophets were until John. Why? Because they were describing things in a way that's true, but like a photograph that's out of focus. You know, it's like, is it truly there? Is it truly the yeah, it is. And then all of a sudden with Jesus, it snaps into focus, right? And you can finally see it. So it goes from the Messiah nebulously to Jesus of Nazareth. It snaps into focus. That's the transition. That's the discontinuity is it snaps into focus. But the continuity is it's been the faith from the very beginning. Christianity has been the one faith all the way through. Okay, so next time you hear the Judeo-Christian worldview, you can be like, whoa. Master? Through in a very sense. Yeah. Yeah, please, please. Um, uh, just, uh, I think we lose some of what you were just saying when we, when we think, when we, when we say, uh, Jesus Christ, when it should have been Jesus, the Christ. Mm, yeah, yeah. You think of it as a first and last name and it's not. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always tease the confirmation kids with that. Um, yeah, exactly. So that is, I, I, you, you bring out the point that Jesus Christ, as it was originally stated, is the shortest creed, uh, the shortest Christian creed there is. Because you're saying that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. So the Mashiach in Hebrew is the Christos. Those are the anointed ones. Let's see. So, so you've got faith in the Mashiach. Faith in the Christos, that's identical. The only thing that's different is two different languages. And then you're saying Jesus, that is, this man of Nazareth, is the Christos, which he is the Mashiach, the Messiah. Yeah, so so Jesus Christ, I, I see your point. I think the error is more in how people think about it, um, as opposed to the words. The words have power. Yeah, 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 yeah. So in the, uh, in the early church, in the scriptures, to simply say Jesus Christ is to make the confession. That's the fundamental creed from which all other creeds or statements of faith uh, flow. So thank you for that. Good point. Good point. Okay, so how do you, how do you if, if you're dealing with someone who is following Judaism, as opposed to Christianity, as the Pharisees were, how do you expose that? Well, I think you expose that masterfully by doing what Jesus does in verse 18, by driving home how little they understand the law, because they will willy-nilly grant divorces and certificate of divorces to whomever they want, thinking that they're righteous in accordance with the law. And Jesus' point here is how far off you are. Pastor Goodman, I think this is almost like an insult in its own right, right? It could be like, because they're ridiculing him, so Jesus is almost, you know, in a sense, he's ridiculing Oh, he absolutely does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not a superficial ridiculing, but it's a it's a very, very, I mean, in a sense, systematic takedown of their position. Mm-hmm. And all, I mean, this entire section really is law to them. I mean, I, I think you can kind of detect some invitation to the joy you can you can see an invitation that Jesus doesn't end the parable of the two lost boys with the eldest being cast out by the father and disowned by the father. 
It's left open-ended. Will he come in or not? So I do think that there's invitation here in the preaching of Jesus, but by and large, it's condemning, and it especially becomes harsh and condemning toward them at, as you pointed out, verse 14, where now they're openly ridiculing him. So whatever openings he left and whatever invitation he left, they've shut the door on. They're ridiculing him. And so now he's going on the offensive all the more. And so the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is a complete indictment of them and their position. I mean, he basically tells a story where they end up in hell. (laughs) It's great. But to his disciples, and this is Jesus' way, to his disciples, it's simultaneously wonderful. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus is, is absolutely wonderful. Okay, so what's the uh, what's the reason that we would call this a, a parable? Well, the entire sermon has been filled with parables. That's the first. And then the second is that the construction that's used in 19, I, it's, it's obvious in English, um, as well as it is in Greek, is a is the exact construction he uses to introduce the parables. Uh, look at 16.1, for example. So he says to the disciples, there was a rich man. So in the Greek, it would be like, there was a certain rich man. And then here in 19, there was a rich man. Or again, in the Greek, there was a certain rich man. So that's what leads everybody to think this is a parable. But again, it's not outright stated that there's a parable. This is the only parable in which someone is given a proper name. So those data points lead some people to say, well, maybe it isn't. Fine, maybe it isn't. Yeah. All right, so Jesus, again, going on the offensive against the Pharisees who are ridiculing him while simultaneously comforting and encouraging his disciples. You're going to see the themes of mercy, the theme, the themes of Christianity proper over and against the themes of Judaism on display. Um, but then you're also going to see money woven into this the rich and the poor, which is a major deal in Luke's gospel. We haven't had time to reflect on that much. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that's Matthew uh, recording that for us. In the Sermon on the Plain, which is Luke's, he doesn't have the Sermon on the Mount, he has the Sermon on the Plain. And it's not blessed are the poor in spirit, but it's just blessed are the poor, full stop. So in Luke, there's really this theology, continuation of Old Testament theology, where the rich are necessarily the bad guys and the poor are necessarily the good guys. Are there obvious exceptions to that? Yeah, sure. Joseph of Arimathea, he's wealthy. Nicodemus, he's wealthy. They show up to bury Jesus. So the point isn't like, aha, there's exceptions. Luke's wrong. The point is to see the way in which he's speaking. James does the same thing in his epistle talks about the poor man and the rich man. Um, This is a a very common motif. Uh, These are two types. The wealthy reject God on account of their wealth. The poor receive God and are blessed on account of their poverty. So just understand these as broad categories, as motifs, and I think you'll, uh, you'll be much better off. Okay, shall we jump in? I know we don't have a lot of time, but we'll at least get where we can. So there was a rich man or a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. Uh, This is exceedingly rare. I mean, nobody, nobody in this day and age is continually clothed 
in purple and fine linen. Even the wealthiest, Jesus is going to do some things that are hyperbole, as he almost always does. Even amongst the rich, they're not wearing purple and fine linen every day, nor are they feasting sumptuously every day. So this guy's a caricature right off the bat. He's clothed in purple. Um, Of course, the dye and all that, Lydia, you remember all those details. Um, So fine linen, who feasted uh, sumptuously every day. I'll make just one passing comment, and this is why we need to bring fasting back into our discipline, because as Americans, we feast all the time. And the problem with that isn't, is precisely this, that if you feast all the time, you actually lose feasting. So it was my birthday not terribly long ago, and my wife says, what do you want for your birthday dinner? And I'm like, I care less. Why could I care less? Because I can get anything I want anytime I want it. I mean, what am I going to come up with that I can't get there? It's so strange. I mean, it's more like, well, I want I want you to make me the peach pie that my mom made me <laughs> as a kid. That's the thing, but that's a niche thing, and it's kind of a it's kind of a symptom of the fact that we just have everything at our disposal, and so we're constantly feasting all the time. The real the real problem there is we don't know what it is to feast if we do it all the time. So that's that's the main reason we need to bring back fasting, especially during like Lent. Second to that would be Advent, various other times of the year, so that we know, again, what feasting is and what it means. So um, it's not legalism. It's just called like the texture and flavor of life. <laughs> okay, that little caveat aside, he's feasting every day. Which, of course, the Pharisees are lovers of money, so they're like, you know, all their theology is inferred. Oh, this guy's blessed by God. He's doing it right. It's the guy we want to be. Okay, at his gate. Now, this rich man is coming in and out of his gate all the time. He doesn't sit at home with his refrigerator and, you know, just eat all. So you got to go in and out of the gate. He's in and out of the gate all the time. And there is laid a poor man named Lazarus. And we noticed we noticed a contrast, of course, right away, that the rich and the poor, okay, but the rich man, does he have a name? And Lazarus does. And there's our first hint. That's a deeper theology of the remembrance. <laughs> I won't go into that. I could spend a whole hour, I think, talking about the theology of remembrance. Remember what the thief on the cross says, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. So there's this um, it's just beautiful theology. I'll try to do it real shorthand. And God will remember you and forget your sins. Or he will remember your sins and forget you. <laughs> Those are the two options you have. So the rich man, his sins are remembered. Is his name remembered? Nope. Lazarus, are are his sins remembered? Nope, but his name is. So you see that contrast here on display. All right, now this is masterful preaching on the part of Jesus. So the rich man is clothed in purple and fine linens. What's Lazarus clothed in? Sores. He's covered with sores. The rich man is feasting sumptuously every day. 
the poor man, Lazarus, desires to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Now, that is a, a, a subtle or not so subtle aside. Do you remember the lost boy? What does he desire to be fed with? The pods that the pigs are eating. <laughs> and here the poor man is desiring to be fed by the crumbs that fall from the rich man's table. And of course, this harkens back to the table fellowship also introduced at 15.1, that the charge of the Pharisees, this man's receiving sinners and eating with them. All right. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. This is taken in the history of interpretation in two different senses. And again, it's just another example as the one before. They can be taken in different senses as long as it's understood properly. Nobody cares. So one sense is that uh, he can't even fend off the dogs. So these are, these are kind of like wild dogs. These are city dogs. These are not like, you know, Fifi in the purse. This isn't like Lassie or the Golden Retriever coming up. Um, they kind of like, they're licking his sores because why? They want to eat him. So he's, that's, that's one take. The other take is that, uh, and this is the more pet-friendly take. Okay, The dogs are licking his wounds. That is, the dogs are doing for this man. They're caring for this man. The dogs are doing for him what even the rich man will not. So... The dogs are more compassionate than the rich man. It's another way of reading this. All right, I don't care which one you like. You you take your pick. All right, quite the contrast set up, right? Then we have death, the great uh, equalizer, the great leveler, or in this case, even more, the great reverser, reversal. The poor man died. And was carried by the angels to Abraham's side is fine, but bosom is more proper. And it's a weird image, but not if you understand. It's actually better to put it bosom because this is this is the language specific to reclining at a feast. So to Abraham's bosom doesn't mean he's like, I don't know. You get this odd image of like he's being cradled in Abraham's lap or something. That's not what's going on. All right. He gets to be, um, remember in, when Jesus is reclining at table, uh, the disciple whom he loves, John's way of referring to himself, is at the bosom of Jesus. So he's right there. So he gets to lean back and look Jesus right in the eye. I mean, he can feel the breath of Jesus answering him, you know, when he says, Lord, is it I? So this place of intimacy, this place of honor, and what is going on here is a feast. So he goes from starving, wanting the scraps that fall from the rich man's table, to feasting with Abraham in the place of honor. Quite the reversal. Now, if you were to say, oh, gosh, are the scales balanced at the end of verse 21? You'd say, no, you can make the accusation that God is unjust. But by verse 22, can you say that? Nope. 
So that's a good thing to keep in mind that God, I, and I've, I, I think that there's no problem whatsoever saying this. I think we ought to say this, that God is unjust if all we see is this life. But that's precisely the point. It's not the whole equation. So hold off. I mean, there's no problem with us acknowledging, oh, yeah, God appears to be unjust right now. But he will balance those scales and balance them mightily. All right. So then what about the rich man? On the clock. We'll get this and, and no further. We'll have to jump back into this. It's better that way. We could probably spend a whole hour on this anyway. So um, let's get the contrast. The rich man also died. Second half of 22. Now, whereas the poor man died and was carried by the angels, the rich man also died and was buried. Now, again, obviously they're both buried, but look at the masterful way Jesus tells this so that the contrast is drawn out. Carried by the angels versus buried into the earth to be worm's food. And in Hades, so Hades um, frequently used for the realm of the dead, but here contrasted with Abraham's bosom. So this is one of the places that it, you know, obviously this was, Jesus is drawing on an older tradition. So this is the way they spoke. And Jesus is familiar with this, but then this comes into the Christian tradition in the same way that to die as a believer is to go to Abraham's bosom, to be carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. This becomes one of the sweet names of death. The church fathers identify this as one of the sweet names of death. When you die, you'll be carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, to the great heavenly feast. Whereas in contrast, this man is buried, so his body goes into the earth and his soul goes underneath the earth. Remember, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth, under the earth is Hades. So his body is buried into the earth and his soul goes under the earth into Hades. And far from feasting, he's in torment. And we're going to find that just as Lazarus wanted the crumbs that fell from his table. Now he wants a drop of water that falls from Lazarus' finger. Pretty symmetrical, pretty complete reversal down to the beautiful details. And that's not really a cliffhanger, but that's where we're going to end it. So I see we're out of time. I want to be respectful of that. We'll pick back up with this wonderful contrast uh, that Jesus tells. And we'll talk about um, its uh, deeper theological import. And then whatever other uh, questions or considerations you have, we'll entertain those as well. Shall we close with the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.